Hi folks, it's Melissa Murray. Here's a recording of my latest cafe note, the Supreme Court and the Second Amendment. As always, write to us with your thoughts and questions at letters at cafe.com. Dear listener, after a lockdown lull, America has reverted to type. In recent months, episodes of gun violence and mass shootings have punctuated the news cycle. At some point, we may barely even register the fact of gun-related events we've become so anesthetized to them. How did it get this way? Obviously, lots of people, from sociologists and criminologists to political scientists and economists, have proffered various theories about why gun violence is minimal in other advanced democracies, but seems endemic in the United States. One factor that almost all scholars seem to agree on is that guns are more available in the United States. That is, the supply of guns is ample, and though there are laws that may seek to limit access to guns, more and more states are loosening gun control regulations while simultaneously authorizing gun owners to lawfully use their guns to stand their ground and defend themselves and their property. Some have argued that this gun-friendly legal landscape is the result of intensive lobbying efforts orchestrated by gun rights groups like the National Rifle Association. There's no doubt that the NRA has been unapologetic and unwavering in its support of more permissive gun laws. But what has been overlooked is that the NRA has had an increasingly receptive audience for its pro-gun message, not just in the public at large or in state legislatures across the country, but in the courtroom where it happens, the United States Supreme Court. Over the last 15 years, The court has been an important, albeit stealthy, player in the effort to limit government regulation of guns. This term, it is poised to deliver another landmark ruling that will likely widen the scope and substance of the Second Amendment. The text of the Second Amendment reads as follows. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. For most of our constitutional history, This provision was interpreted as protecting the right of the people within their various states to maintain a well-regulated militia. That is, the right to bear arms was interpreted as inextricably linked to militia service. It did not provide individuals with a broad right to keep and bear arms. On that account, state actors could properly regulate gun ownership and possession to achieve various state purposes, including public safety. For example, in 1934, Congress enacted the National Firearms Act, which prohibited, among other things, the transportation of certain classes of unregistered firearms across state lines. In 1938, when Jack Miller and Frank Layton were charged under the statute with unlawfully, knowingly, willfully, and feloniously transporting an unregistered 12-gauge shotgun from Oklahoma to Arkansas, they argued that the act infringed upon their Second Amendment rights. In a spare seven-page opinion in Miller versus United States, the Supreme Court disagreed, holding that, quote, in the absence of any evidence tending to show that possession or use of a shotgun having a barrel of less than 18 inches in length at this time has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument, end quote. And so it was until 2008, when the court took up District of Columbia versus Heller. Obviously, much had changed since the court last considered the Second Amendment in Miller back in 1939, including the composition of the court. 
By 2008, the court had slowly but determinedly drifted rightward. Now there was a block of at least three justices who were deeply interested in revisiting and interrogating the scope and sweep of the Second Amendment. Justice Scalia wrote the five to four majority opinion, which departed from over 200 years of constitutional history to adopt what he called an original understanding of the Second Amendment, one that read the amendment to protect an individual's right to keep and bear arms, unconnected with militia service, for traditionally lawful purposes, such as self-defense within the home. Just two years later, in McDonald versus City of Chicago, the court extended Heller's logic to the states, concluding that the Second Amendment's individual right to keep and bear arms was enforceable against state and local governments. But Heller and McDonald only spoke to the individual right to keep and bear arms in the home. They did not speak to the myriad other restrictions on gun ownership and possession that states and municipalities impose. Sensing a more receptive court, gun rights groups filed multiple petitions urging the court to take up their challenges to various restrictions and regulations. But although the court's conservative wing was receptive to the prospect of a more robust Second Amendment, there appeared to be some hesitation, even among the conservative bloc. Petitions seeking review came before the court and were dismissed, denying gun rights enthusiasts an opportunity to continue the project of expanding the scope of the Second Amendment. At one point, his frustration evident, Justice Clarence Thomas chided his colleagues for refusing to take up a gun rights challenge. The court's failure to review these restrictions, he declared, risks turning the Second Amendment into a second-class right. The court's reticence on gun rights likely reflected complex realities. At the time many of these challenges were raised, the court's conservative bloc held a narrow five to four majority. And while Justices Thomas and Alito may have been eager to push the Second Amendment envelope, Justice Kennedy, a more moderate conservative, and Chief Justice Roberts, the court's incremental institutionalist, seemed less eager to move quickly and decisively. And while the court insists that it is above the public fray of politics, it likely did not help that a steady stream of school shootings had galvanized a broad swath of public opinion on the issue of gun control. But that was then. This is now. Moderates like Justice Kennedy no longer sit on the court, and its liberal wing has been cut down to just three justices. With the three Trump-appointed justices cementing a six-to-three conservative supermajority, The landscape for a more expansive vision of the Second Amendment has never looked rosier. And not surprisingly, now that they are no longer required to court the votes of Justice Kennedy and the chief, the court's core conservatives look ready to go beyond Heller to recognize an individual right to carry weapons in public settings. This term, the court has taken up a major Second Amendment challenge. The case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, challenges New York's concealed carry permitting scheme. Amidst rising gun violence, some states, including New York, have sought to restrict the carrying of a concealed weapon. For example, New York requires those seeking a license to carry a concealed handgun to show proper cause, a term the New York courts have defined to require applicants to show a special need for self-defense beyond simply wanting to protect themselves or their property. The New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, an NRA affiliate, argues that such limits violate the Second Amendment. At oral argument, a majority of the justices appeared to agree. The only real issue was whether, and in what circumstances, 
states and localities could denominate certain public spaces like stadia, college campuses, and mass transportation as sensitive areas appropriate for some restrictions on the right to carry a concealed weapon. But to be sure, the justices made clear that there would be considerable teeth gnashing over what public spaces might warrant such consideration. Justice Kagan, a native New Yorker, pushed the view that the state should be able to restrict concealed weapons at sites of mass congregation, like the New York City subway. But conservative stalwart Justice Samuel Alito suggested that the subway might be exactly the sort of place where individuals should be free to carry a concealed firearm. As he described it, New York City shift workers, waitresses, doormen, nurses, had little choice but to take public transportation late at night through, quote-unquote, high-crime areas. Wouldn't the Second Amendment permit them to carry a concealed weapon to defend themselves in those circumstances? It was an odd turn for Justice Alito, whose jurisprudence dismantling public sector union rights has hobbled the working-class people he hopes to arm. But in many ways, Justice Alito's remarks recall the 1970s classic Death Wish, in which a Manhattan architect, played by Charles Bronson, turns to vigilantism after being attacked on the subway. Alito's concern for shift workers who must rely on public transportation not only underscored the prospect of subway violence, which has been on the rise, but also the prospect of ordinary individuals armed to the teeth and ready to reclaim these essential public spaces. But while Alito may have been thinking of Paul Kersey, Death Wish's mild-mannered architect, the exchange reminded me of a different vigilante. Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse, you'll remember, was a 17-year-old from Antioch, Illinois, who fatally shot two men and wounded another in Kenosha, Wisconsin, during the protest riots and civil unrest that followed the shooting of Jacob Blake by a police officer. As Rittenhouse explained, he had crossed state lines armed with a semi-automatic AR-15-style rifle in order to defend and protect businesses and property during the unrest. Charged with murder and attempted murder, at trial, Rittenhouse insisted that he had acted in self-defense. He was acquitted of all charges. In many ways, Kyle Rittenhouse would not exist without the Supreme Court and its modern jurisprudence on the Second Amendment. The combination of persistent NRA lobbying efforts coupled with a more robust constitutional landscape for gun rights has made for a potent cocktail. Gun laws have generally become more permissive, Open carry is now legal to one degree or another in almost every state. And gun purchases have soared, making firearms more commonplace. The combination of pervasive gun ownership and more permissive laws means that there will likely be few recognized limits on the laws of self-defense. And it is not likely to improve in the face of the court's likely ruling in Bruin. If the Second Amendment vests the individual with the right to bear arms at home and in public for purposes of self-defense, then almost any perceived threat can serve as a justification to use a firearm. It is a situation in which gun violence will become even more normalized than it already is. And it is a situation that has been cultivated and facilitated, whether consciously or not, by the court and its decisions. Stay informed. Melissa. Melissa. 